Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Welcome back to Lunchtime Movie Review, where we look back at some of our childhood favorites to see if they stand the test of time. Uh, this week, we're going to look back at 1990, one of the biggest films, or the biggest film of 1990, Home Alone. This week, I'm Patrick, and with me this week is... I'm Wet Bandit Chris. I'm Jay. Matthew Intern. And we're reviewing Home Alone, but before we get started, but first, a word from our sponsor. Leaving town for the holidays? Have a lot of nice things in your home. Stereos, VCRs, maybe even some fine jewelry. Strange cops casing your house during family dinner. There's a good chance you're about to get burglarized. McAllister Security Services can help. For limited time, we're offering our holiday vacation security package. For a low fee, we'll send an eight-year-old boy to keep those burglars away. Our system goes beyond the typical timed lights and locks on your doors. With our system, you can not only taunt the local thugs, you can torture them in all kinds of inventive ways. So take peace of mind with you on vacation this year. McAllister Security Services. Ask about our blowtorch upgrade. Yeah, I thought you told me that sucked. That, that uh, was pretty good. Yeah. All right. All right. Who's got the summary this week? I've got the summary this week. Uh, you're a one-man wrecking crew this week, Matt. I like to point out how natural the summary feels. <laughs> because it takes about a sentence to summarize this film. It's Christmas in the McAllister house. A family of smug and condescending suburbanites prepares for their trip to France, where they'll learn how to sharpen their smug condescension from the experts. Kevin McAllister, played by Macaulay Culkin, a boisterous, toe-headed eight-year-old, causes trouble with his family, culminating in the spilling of a soda and the forced vomiting of an entire large cheese pizza. Kevin is chastised and sent to bed without his dinner or his passport. In his boyish rage, Kevin wishes that his family would disappear as a Christmas gift, which incidentally is the same gift for which Charles Manson wished that year they were sold out of Partridge Family lunch pails. As luck would have it, Kevin's family disappeared that night, or so he thinks. Turns out they just didn't notice that the loudest and neediest of their children wasn't there until their plane was approaching Greenwich meantime. Kevin's mom panics. Kevin, however, parties. He loves every minute of his freedom and does all those things his parents won't let him do. Eat junk food and watch gangster movies, jump on his parents' bed while snacking on popcorn, dig deep into his brother's porno stash. Someone else, however, is eyeing Kevin's house. Two robbers, played by Joe Pesci and some dude with a beard, have been casing the house, hoping to steal its valuables and clog its sink. Despite being among the greatest cat burglars in the world, these robbers are only slightly less incompetent and cowardly than the Chicago police. They come to burgle the house on several occasions, but are scared away by Kevin's antics. Meanwhile, Kevin's mom is determined to get home and care for her annoying child. She takes any flight she can get, crisscrossing the United States and inching closer to Chicago. She even goes so far as to hop in a van with a polka band, where John Candy proudly shows off his clarinet. The burglars muster all their courage and plan one last big heist at the McAllister house. Kevin is ready for them, and the results are hilarious. He managed to trap him down a flight of stairs, burn one's hand with a scalding doorknob, 
smash one's face with a hot iron, impale a foot on a tarry nail, scald Joe Pesci's scalp with a blowtorch, shoot him in the nuts with a BB gun, dress him like a chicken, call two of them a horse's ass, make them slip on micro-machines, smash their faces with paint cans, and even use the oldest trick in the book, the old tarantula on the face. The burglars persist through all of this. Ultimately, the burglars outsmart Kevin and catch him. He's saved as Pesci prepares to bite off Kevin's fingers. Seriously. When the creepy old murderer in the neighborhood bashes both, both burglars' face with a snow shovel. From there, the police handle it, and both burglars are back on the street within eight hours. The next day is Christmas, and Kevin gets his newest wish, his family back. Somehow, he manages to clean the house just the way they left it, except, of course, for his brother's porno stash. And the hookers and blow in the parents' bedroom. <laughs> and that was Home Alone. <laughs> Do we need to really discuss this one? <laughs> I say no, and let's just move on to A Christmas Story 2, Electric oh. Boogaloo. Okay. Also, <laughs> also starring that guy with the beard. <laughs> and after some clever editing, I have to say that was probably the best summary we've had yet. <laughs> Wow, this a little just... bit long for my taste. Can you kind of tired? <laughs> yeah. Home Alone, released in no- on November 16th, 1990, released the same day as Rescuers Down Under and Rocky V, the same month as Dances with Wolves, Child Play 2, Predator 2, Three Men and a Lady, or Three Men and a Baby 2, Misery, and Jacob's Ladder. Grossed over $285 million, was the highest grossing film of 1990 by a long shot, was in front of Ghost, which exceeded uh, which exceeded Ghost's box office haul by sixty eight million, Dances with Wolves and Pretty Woman. Uh, what else was going on in nineteen ninety? Well, first and foremost, the space shuttle Atlantis was launched on a classified military mission into space. NFL finds the New England Patriots and three players for the sexual harassment of reporter Lisa Olson. That was before text messaging, wasn't it? Yes, before text. So that's before they could do it by just taking a picture of their penis and sending it to them. No, they had to actually go in front of her and dangle the Johnson for them. Uh, things change. <laughs> so, wow. Wow. Dangle a- the Johnson. <laughs> it was more personal back then. You had to do it face <laughs> yeah. to face. Exactly. So, so that's what they'd have to this- do in between walking uphill both ways to school. You'd have to stop halfway and dangle your Johnson. <laughs> you know, our generation has it so easy. Yeah, you can just do it from the, the comfort of your own bedroom. So, uh, the UN Security Council, Council passes UN Security Council Resolution 670, Resolution 678, authorizing military intervention into Iraq if the forces did not withdraw from Kuwait and release all foreign hostages by January 15th, 1991, which essentially cleared the way for the Gulf War in 1991. And the number one song for the week that Home Alone was released was Love Takes Time by Mariah Carey from the self-titled album Mariah Carey. I don't ever remember that song. Jay, was this one of your favorites? Oh, yeah. I celebrate her entire catalog. <laughs> this was before she was a diva. I think that's her self-titled. It wasn't, was it her first album? Maybe that's why I don't remember it. Was this before she married the Sony exec? I, I know it's before she married the Sony exec. That was like early 90s but not 1990 oh. once again Matt Mariah Carey was a singer I think she came, came around the late 80s early 90s we're not too sure about that you might have heard of her she's had bigger songs since then she well, was on Sunday Night Football this, this, this season oh she was yeah but she did not get a drug addiction from Bobby Brown little FYI no that's who I always confuse her with Whitney Houston yeah 
And finally, President George H. Bush signs the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, which includes a tax increase despite his no new taxes pledge, which was last time a Republican president put the country before a second term. Why don't we start with Matt? Matt, what what what's something you want to talk about with Home Alone? So I, I kind of want to poll you guys, and I want to ask if Home Alone is kind of a, a part of of the Christmas movie canon. No, because you, know, you have your you have your your It's a Wonderful Life. You know your uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Is it Thirty Fourth Street? What street is it? It's Thirty Fourth Street. Good. It's underwater. That's where the miracle was. <laughs> uh, it, it, I would argue it crosses Christmas- with Gene Roddenberry Way. well chris gets miracles on 55th street all the time so sometimes van buren but it's (laughs) so then that's my question what what is the christmas canon is this movie a part of it jay um i usually watch die hard and uh what is it christmas story those are the two favorite christmas movies this one it's christmasy but meh (laughs) christmasy it's entirely christmas but chris uh, no, this isn't part of mine at all. It, for me, it's usually the Christmas Story and uh, Christmas Vacation are the two big movies that I'll watch. This is kind of like if I ever do get left home alone and Santa doesn't leave me any cookies or anything, then I'll, then I'll feel better about myself watching a little boy get chased by two grown men. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll back you up on uh, on this one, Matt. I think that's your argument that it is a Christmas film. Um, I worked in the movie theater when this came out, uh, as it seems like every other f***ing film we review I did. I did not like it at the time. I've grown to like it a little better now. I do own it, and it is something I generally watch, if not every Christmas, every other Christmas. Um, it's just something that it, it takes me back to a time. It's not. It's actually not a film I really, really, really enjoy, really like a lot. It's just it reminds me of... Well, my, you know, basically the end of my childhood and beginning of my adulthood. So, it's yeah. back when you still had all your hair. Yes, it was back when I still had hair. So, <laughs> and I believe you were about sixty pounds lighter, Chris, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I, I think it was less than more than that. <laughs> I'm assuming you think it is a, a Christmas classic. I do think it's a Christmas classic. Maybe not the best christmas movie ever but it, and it might be for me you know when this movie came out i was about eight years old so it's, you know i was still young enough that uh there was still still a lot of magic in christmas for me so it might be a, a little bit of nostalgia i put it up there for me i i probably watch it every year do you think it was possibly hurt because they've created they created two more theatrical films one with macaulay culkin one without and then they made a straight to video release and now my understanding, this Christmas, they're bringing out Home Alone 5 uh, on direct-to-video, not into the theaters. Do you think that its kind of legacy was harmed by all these knockoff, crappy spinoffs? Well, there's only one joke, right? I yeah, mean, someone paid money to go see it in the theater. A ton of people paid money to go see it in the theater. But This is the kind of story that probably lends itself to one one film, I think, Uh I mean, how much can can this little kid outsmart these bungling robbers? Um, I think definitely you, you you can cheapen something. All right. Yeah, like remember, like having Max scream into the uh, camera like every five minutes. Yeah, because you know that never got old at all. But it but it was never cheapened by any means whatsoever. Well, predictable, but it is a kids' film. Tell me a kids' film that's not predictable. 
Well, no, but we're talking about cheapening a legacy. It's like, okay, we're just going to keep using the same joke over and over again. So Yeah, but they did it throughout this film. You know, yeah. board uh, hits. Th- that was my point. I being a little sarcastic on it at that point. No, I, I think I, it might ma- it might cheapen it for the people that saw the original. But you know, so much time has has passed, and it, it, like it is for little kids. Probably, I wouldn't say maybe any older than nine or ten, and they might not have seen all these other versions. So you know, they might like one version better. Something they might identify for the time it's in. Um, even though it's a rehash story, I mean, what stories really aren't? So, I mean, for me, sure, that kind of uh, makes it less effective having all these sequels. But uh, I don't think it really hurts the series in the long run. I think it had already run its course, and now it's just kind of rehashing something for the whole family. It's a safe movie that um, no matter what's going on in the world, um, you know, it's not going to challenge anybody, and uh, everybody can watch it. Well, Jay, you brought up something uh, you know, off mic about who the target demographic was, and obviously there was this was kids. Oh yeah, it was definitely probably like the tweens and younger, probably more boys than girls to a lesser extent or greater extent. Just trying to get that, uh, I think, was the target audience because well, um, you had a, a lot of slapstick, very what was it, Three Stooges and Rotor and Coyote type humor involved. Well, you were in this target. You were in this target demographic at the time. If I count my years right, you were eleven when this film came out. Yeah, I was. I would say I was in the target demographic. And when it came out, I remember seeing it in the theater and liking the movie, but just kind of hoping that it would get to the whole point. You know, the skip over the the whole story and just get to the uh, burglars trying to break into the house and uh, the Macaulay Culkin character Kevin uh, trying to fight off the burglars. And Matt, you were, I think you were eight at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And you were actually excited to review this film. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, you have fa- a fondness or a fond memory of this film. Uh, yeah. I remember seeing it. I remember seeing it in the theater and having a really good time. Honestly, it was so long ago. I, I can't really tell you, you know, more of what I thought about it. Besides it was funny to watch a grown man get hit in the face with an iron. <laughs> Well, when does that ever get old? So they were really, I still enjoy watching a grown man get hit with, with most things. Well, and Chris, you and I were outside the demographic. I mean, you and I were both 18 at the time. You know, we had just graduated high school a few months before. What are your memories of this film? Did you see it back in 1990 or roundabouts? You know, I can't remember for the life of me if I saw it in the theater or when it first came out on VHS. Um, I want to say that I went to um, – we did go see it in the theater like uh, around Christmas Eve. I have fond memories of the movie, um, even though it um, there was parts of the story that bothered me even back then that just wasn't terribly plausible. I thought it was a, a funny, um, happy-go-lucky type film, um, you know, just to spend an afternoon uh, doing nothing. So, yeah, I have good memories of it. As I said, I worked in the movie theater, and I was talking about Jay with Jay this afternoon about this, is that... I remember this film as the utter pain in the ass that it was because this film was always mobbed. I was always cleaning the theater. It was always full of kids, and it was always a mess because of that. So I initially did not like this film, mainly because I saw it as a lot of fucking work to do all the time. (laughs) And it was quite surprising at the time because we usually had an idea of what films were going to be good or big or what films weren't. And this film opened on one screen uh, the Friday before Thanksgiving, and pretty much sold out all weekend long, even the night shows. 
And we opened up a second screen on Wednesday before Thanksgiving when we got a couple more movies. So it was one of those rare things that I think it really was. It kind of out of nowhere um, became a big, big, big film. So um, I think it took everyone by surprise of how, how big it was. Why do we think that this movie ultimately became so successful? Okay, Jay, you start. You know, I, I think it hit the target demographic really well, and it just kind of hit a good niche time period. Because I think you you listed off uh, the movies that came out around this time period. And I think the only really kids movie was Rescuers from Down Under or Rescuers Down Under. Yeah. Which, to my recollection, was not a good movie to begin with. So I think it, it hit the the family kid market that probably drove people to see it. I mean, I remember some of the advertisements for it was just the sheer, um, you know, Macaulay Culkin defending his house with, you know, the, the his toys, basically. And I thought that was or I thought it was a kind of a clever thing for a movie to do. So that got me that that was my that was the hook that got me there. Um, and I think it just kind of spread from there. Um, good timing and kind of a, a neat hook. What about you, Matt? If I, if I had to guess, I, I think they executed the slapstick humor very well, given keeping in mind their demographic. So, you know, the, the kind of the whole family can go, you know, and just watch this kid pull off this, this, this feat that's pretty fun. And you put it in the holiday setting, which kind of draws people in, too. I mean, it's not a particularly great movie, really, under any analysis other than i think people just had fun and um joe pesci and uh the other guy they were they were funny the other guy daniel stern that's the guy <laughs> gene roddenberry any relation to gene roddenberry there no <laughs> none whatsoever he's so. the lesser known of the two <laughs> bob roddenberry <laughs> so i mean I, I think i think mostly it was just uh you put it in the holiday setting and and people have fun i think that's all there was to it chris yeah, I think it, it had everything to do with timing. You know, it's a, a safe family film at the beginning of the family time of year um, where people can just go and hang out like after their shopping or before shopping. You know, they can make a whole day of it. Macaulay Culkin, if I remember correctly, he was pretty popular back then coming off of Uncle, Uncle Buck. So he was something that uh, people would go see for a, a funny film. Well, you know, he did come off Uncle Buck, which was a, also a, a John Hughes script. I think it was a, probably an effective use of uh, talent for that. But um, really, do you think so? Because he had kind of a, a very spit part almost. Yeah, but the part that he was in, I, I distinctly remember him, uh, especially the t interrogation scene of he's interrogating John Candy. And also, I think he's interrogating someone through like a mail slot or something. I, I, those are my memories of that. But, you know, I, I thought it was it was the same kind of comedy, a little bit more adult, that film. But he, he fit perfectly in, the, in that mold. And I think Macaulay Culkin's career, he did okay in Home Alone 1, did okay in Home Alone 2. And after that, when he started doing like The Good Son, he started doing more adult or different kinds of roles is that it the audience didn't want to follow him and he wasn't necessarily convincing in it until he grew to be an adult. And then he did some other roles that were um, much better. And I think he was more experienced as an actor. Uh, he but, had that, that classic comedian's arc, but all before he was like in puberty, you know, <laughs> he wanted to go the serious actor's route, prove he could do it. And once again, you know, just, well, he was a scene stealer in uncle buck. 
I mean, he, he was small parts, but, uh, uh, you know, that's some of the most memorable scenes besides John Candy in a, in a, uh, um, what the heck is that called? Yeah, never mind. Oh. Well, I mean, he essentially is carrying this film. I mean, he's yeah. having all these monologues on that. Does he pull it off? Chris? Oh, yeah, he pulls it off. You know, he's, he's a little shithead in this movie, <laughs> but uh, he's, he's a funny little shithead. He's, he's likable. You want to see if the little punk can get away from uh, the, the crooks in this, in this film. So, no, I think uh, he, he pulls it off very well. I think it's a very well-balanced movie. What about you, Matt? He has to. I mean, he has to carry the movie. But like I mentioned earlier, I think that that Pesci and Stern do a great job of pulling off the comedy in it because Macaulay Culkin's not really funny. And and maybe you know maybe Pesci benefits from all of those other roles we remember him from, where it becomes funny to see that guy get get had by a little kid. But Culkin, he, I mean, he does a good job. If he didn't, it would be a dreadful, dreadful movie. Um, but I don't think he can get get credit for it all with with how well those other guys did. Jay, see, I, I take a look at what Macaulay Culkin turned in as an acting performance, and I could almost like in the background see okay, the director going, "Okay, now act surprised, now act pens." You know, it just seemed very incredibly forced compared to Pesci, the mom. So, I mean, he turned in an okay performance, but compared to some of the other people, like the well-known established actors, I just, he was the weakest actor out of the group. And I think it shows. Obviously he's not going to emote as well as a trained adult actor, but I don't think he embarrassed himself. I do agree. There are, there are portions in it where his dialogue is just, you you can tell he benefits from the editing because you'll have one line and then a cut to a different angle or a slightly different version of it. So he's giving one line and he's, probably being told what to say in that one sentence um, edit. So, um, but something you brought about, about Joe Pesci, uh, Matt, a, a moment ago, you said how this is perfect casting. This is kind of risky to put Joe Pesci in this film. This is not the film he's known for. And I, one interesting thing is that they wanted Robert De Niro and he turned down the role. So they were obviously going for a type here. You know, gangster heavy, I think, would be the type that they would use. Do you think that was kind of risky to put him in that role? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't I don't recall seeing any other Pesci comedies uh, around this time. So if he can pull it off, he, he's probably better cast than Robert De Niro would have been because I think he's funny. And, you know, the whole, you know, you've always got in the back of your mind him stabbing somebody in the neck with a pen or doing something horrible. So the fact that he's he's kind of playing um, that same type of character, but they flipped it up on its head, I thought was very well done. Um, I think it, I think that's what makes this movie more than anything. So whether I mean risky, I don't know because I, I you know I don't I don't know what they knew about Pesci, but I thought he was the perfect the perfect uh, actor for that role. You thinking he's a clown? You thinking he's funny? <laughs> Well, he had just come off of what Lethal Weapon Two or something, which was a pretty. It was pretty um, comedic. I had forgotten about yeah. that until he mentioned what roles he'd been in, and he hadn't gone into like My Cousin Vinny for a year or two. So, but Lethal yeah. Weapon Two was somewhat of a comedic role. So there was some sort of background prior to that, though. I mean, he was, I mean, he was in Raging Bull, and he'd done some drama, but almost always very dark and very dramatic roles. When was Goodfellas? Uh, Goodfellas actually it comes out 
in December of the same year. So he these both come out in the same year. So it's a huge wow. year for Joe Pesci. He wins the Academy Award for Goodfellas, and he's in the highest grossing film of the year. You know, you say risky, though. That is risky, I suppose, um, because Goodfellas is such a, you know, such a dark bloodbath of a movie. And to have that kind of side by side with this, you know, with this kitty movie is that that does seem kind of risky to me. Yeah, that was Martin Scorsese's risk. So, I mean, because I think this one was filmed first. Uh, Jay, you just described I think it was you who described Macaulay Culkin's character as a little shithead. Which I think is a fair, fair description of the character. That that's the one thing that every time I watch it always strikes me and kind of, you know, sets me back when I first start in the film. This kid's a pain in the ass. He's a little little punk, and I, I we're supposed to be sympathetic for him because he gets left home alone, and it's like he's throwing a tantrum for not getting cheese pizza. Did did that off set anybody off like it does me every time I watch it? Well, I think it actually set Chris off more since he was the one that brought it up. Sorry. Right. Jay, <laughs> stop want- talking. Chris, I want to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> it um, it didn't put me off terribly. I mean, you know, maybe the first time, uh, first couple times I saw it, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy. But, um, you know, I was pretty much entertained by the, the comedic aspects of him escaping the, the criminal's to care, and I think uh, something we haven't really talked about is the the parallel with Marley and uh, his son in this movie with uh, Kevin and his dad. And I think that um, to show that, uh, looking back at it now, to show uh, Kevin has a little shithead at the beginning and then has learned something towards the end with his dad, um, sets up an effective parallel with Marty and his dad, and you know, basic storytelling where the character has to grow in some some sense. I think that's what they were going for with him being a complete shithead at the beginning and then developing towards something a little bit more caring of a little kid at the end. Matt? I totally agree. I, um, he, he, he's very annoying, um, but I, I think it's, it's something that, you know, he kind of comes to appreciate his family and, and goes from the kid throwing a fit over a cheese pizza to, you know, someone who's, who's learned to, Learn to appreciate what he has. Jay, I guess we can hear from you if you have something to say. Oh, good, thanks. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, yeah, uh, Kevin, the Kevin character, is an incredibly whiny eight-year-old boy, which is what most eight-year-old boys are like. I just found it, watching this movie in preparation for this podcast, if this kid was really half as bad as uh, the parents and the siblings really made him out to be, You'd think that they would have at least noticed that, hey, I haven't seen Kevin at all in this airport yet or gone through, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, security in 1990. was a little bit more lax than what it was now, but we still had security at that point or any other place. Someone Back would then have they let up. the little eight-year-olds hold the guns as they brought them through security. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Well, the safeties had to be on, Chris. Let's not forget that. That's true. You got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. That's, that's just being ridiculous. But I mean, uh, if he was really as whiny and annoying as they as they really made him out to be, someone would have noticed that. Hey, it's quiet, too quiet. <laughs> you know that that brings up my biggest pet peeve of this movie. Um, even when I watched it the first time, 
when I watch it today, like I, I know there's stories where parents have a lot of kids and they might forget the kids somewhere, but there's no way in hell you're getting on a 13 hour flight to uh, Paris and he's not going to realize that, Hey, maybe you have an extra ticket that hasn't been used. You know, um, I've never, I've never bought that. They could misplace uh, this little boy for, for that long. I don't think they would have even got out, got onto the uh, airplane without him. Yeah, they tried to write it off as, oh, are we really that bad of parents by sitting in first class while we force the kids to sit and coach? No, someone would have noticed. Someone, whether it's a parent or a sibling, would have noticed. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't the, the blowtorch to the head that you guys found difficult to swallow. It was the, <laughs> it was the plane ticket thrown in the trash that, that really set you off. I've seen people survive a blowtorch to the head, and uh, yeah. And and on top of that, so they call the cops, and the cops just uh, ring the doorbell and leave, basically. No, it, well, it, that that part is actually fairly accurate. Depending, yeah, no. actually, it's Chicago, so it is fairly accurate. Yeah. Anybody who's dealt with law enforcement from time to time, uh, you, you'll find that. Uh, yeah, nobody home. Let's go. So. All right, we got a donut on the way. <laughs> Matt, there are so many things about the uh, kind of funhouse element of the end of the film that it bothered me as far as realism. Not as much as the sequel bothers me. And the sequel is just like, wow, this is just a pure, this is like torture porn that you're putting Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern through the entire damn movie. The, The sequel is, you know, nonstop, just punishment of those two characters, where in this film it's only the last 20 minutes or so. So it's not nearly as bad. Um, one thing I did like about it, and I wanted to get see what you guys thought about it, was the soundtrack. The score is actually done by John Williams, and you know he's one of my favorite um, composers, and uh, he's one of my favorite composers of a lot of film scores. I mean, Jaws, E.T., Schindler's List, the Star Wars films, the Indiana Jones films, and then he did Home Alone which seems to not really granted it was a big box office success, but I, I, a lot of those films I think of as classics, but I think it's, it's, it's great. I think it's a great, you know, musical score to it. it. Even going as far as what songs they chose for the soundtrack, the, some of the classic Christmas songs, what did you guys think about it? See, I was surprised. I, I know we talked about this prior to the recording this podcast, but you, you get a big name like John, um, uh, John Williams and that you don't really use him, or you don't really use Williams much at all. It's just basically pre-recorded music. Yet yeah, maybe he did some rearrangement of some of the uh, old school uh, favorite cl- uh, Christmas classics, but it still had some contemporary and pre-existing music in there. So I thought it was kind of a weird choice to have him connected to the movie. Chris, did you even notice it? Not really. No. Huh. But now that you bring it up, I, I'm, I'm thinking, did um, did maybe he just want to do something for fun for Christmas for maybe his kids or something? Or did he maybe owe somebody a big favor and, like, this was his his way of uh, helping him out? I what? think he wanted to get paid. Not really knowing the guy, but I'm just going to think he wanted to get paid. You know, he did not have a prior relationship with Chris Columbus, who directed this one and Home Alone 2. Um, however, he did do – Chris Columbus did direct the first two Harry Potter films, and John Williams came and scored those two films and only those two films um, before he was replaced in the series. So I do think there – I do think there was an aspect of 
he developed a relationship from Chris Columbus. I don't know if that happened prior to or it happened during this film where he started scoring some of his other films. But as Jay said, I, usually he has very epic, very memorable scores. And the one time I think that anything stands out is the song. There's a score called Somewhere in My Memory, which is it's kind of the theme to Home Alone. You hear it throughout the whole film and it's how they close out the film. But I think it's the, the closest they get to it, um, kind of that classic epic kind of score that you expect in a lot of big films i, d- I definitely found the score memorable i mean i was it, as a kid i can i could probably finish the tune just hearing it you know the, this many years later again you know i saw this movie so young that that a score like this kind of became very closely associated to christmas with me so i liked the score i liked him him bringing in the um the more modern music composed by other other musicians, I thought it, it kind of blended the two together and, um, you know, kind of brought some of that Christmas music we've already heard to, to stand next to his, which might have helped draw his a little more or, or, or produce a little bit more of, a, of that feeling for his. Right. Last thing I wanted that I had in my little notes to talk about is this is a John Hughes film, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And then Home Alone, which once again takes place in a suburb of Chicago. But this seemed to be kind of the, a, the, a break for John Hughes, where he started going away from the teenagers and going much even younger with this one and then Home Alone 2. Um, he was involved with the Beethoven series. He, he made the last film that he directed was Curly Sue, which was a little you know, a story of a little girl. Um, did you even realize it was a John Hughes film when you saw it or no. when you watched it? You know, I've always felt that um, that Kevin was in some ways like a young Ferris Bueller when I watch it. Not necessarily, I don't think he pulls it off as well, but, you know, there was a little kind of a, a shithead uh, characteristic to Ferris Bueller, but not to the extent as, as Kevin. And, you know, Kevin was kind of mischievous in a playful way, too, like Ferris Bueller. So I've always felt that there were some uh, similarities in uh, just the style, the way this film was made. Jay, I d- I didn't recognize this as a John Hughes film until I watched the movie again for this podcast, and I had oh a John Hughes film. I did not know that. I, I just made had that revel- uh, revelation um, last night. So. Well, do you count it as part of? I mean, obviously, it's it's probably his biggest box office success as far as films. But do you do you think of this immediately when you think of John Hughes? I don't, because like you. St- like you started off this topic, it's you, when you think John Hughes, you think of teenage type movies like Ferris Bueller, Sixteen Candles, uh, those sorts. This is not really geared towards the teenagers; it's geared more towards the younger audience. So I, I don't really consider this a classic John Hughes film. And, and Matt, John Hughes was a, a, a director and writer in the '80s. He made teenage films. I, I know, I know John Hughes. Believe it or not. Oh, yeah. I think he was a neighbor of Gene Roddenberry's. So, <laughs> um, and and no, I don't think this is a, a John Hughes movie to me at all. In fact, you know, I knew John Hughes as the Sixteen Candles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off guy. You, you started talking about his work in the '90s, and I was pretty surprised to hear that just now. I never would have never would have associated this with with the you know the creator of of those eighties movies those kind of iconic eighties movies um, very different type of type of film I think well, I, I think Curly Sue Curly Sue wasn't Macaulay Culkin also in this in that movie as well 
Uh, no, he did not play the little girl. No, no. I thought there was another. <laughs> I thought there was a like another like character, like a younger type character, and I thought that was Macaulay Culkin. But. No, I don't think he was in that. It was Jim Belushi, and I don't even remember who the little girl was. But she didn't go on to do much. But this interesting enough that like this Macaulay Culkin. But okay. Oh, the, uh, this is the end of the almost towards the tail end of the John Hughes films. I mean, he. After Curly Sue, he basically went underground. He wrote some stuff, and he did a lot of stuff under another name, but he didn't really return to and He never went back to Hollywood and made films again, and he never kind of covered the teenage era. And I, I kind of wonder if that there always is always this talk and hint that how he struggled with studios, especially with his scripts, that he just went to, I'm going to write a script, somebody else can make it, and fuck it all, you know, whatever happens, happens. And to a large extent, he could wipe his ass with a piece of paper and somebody was going to buy it. And that might explain some of the films that were made. Not that they were like, that terrible, but. That sounds about like how Curly Sue might have been written. <laughs> One could argue that that could apply to this film as well. <laughs> all right. As we go around, wrap it up. Uh, see, it, Let's see if it stands the test of time. And also. Um, is it something that you're going to look forward to watching with your kids when you when you have kids or if you have kids now? Uh, we'll start with Matt since he did the summary. I think it stands the test of time I, I, for for what it is. Um, you know, it's not it's not um, it's a fun movie for the holidays. As that stands the test of time, and and yes, I will I will enjoy watching it with my kids around the holidays. All right, Chris. Yeah, I think it stands the test of time. There's still parts that bother me about it, you know, plot holes and, um, you know, just things that just get too silly for me now that I'm grown up. But overall, I think it's a nice, safe movie that you can see with the whole family. And, uh, you know, I'm not having kids, so I won't be uh, watching any by the campfire with them. None that are your own, of course. None that are my own. (laughs) Jay? I'm going to be a, apparently a Scrooge here, and I don't think this movie stands the test of time. I remember watching this movie in the theater, like I said earlier, and being really excited and pretty much wanting the entire movie to hurry up and get to the last third of the movie with the whole funhouse scene. And to a lesser extent, you know what, It's when I was watching the movie in preparation of the podcast, I was kind of hoping to you know skip to skip over the rest of the story and just get to that part. Um, because I have such fond memories of it. And that, that part is fun, but I just don't think you can, like 20 minutes of a movie can really forgive the other 80 minutes of it. And it's, I know it's necessary to help set it up, but it's just dull and kind of boring. Maybe I'll think differently when I'm, you know, sitting there watching it with my own future kids. But as for right now, I, I just, you know, I was watching it as an adult with no kids. I just don't think it's a good movie and doesn't stand the test of time. Um, as I said, I saw it, I saw it in the theaters cause I worked in the theater. I did not enjoy it much when it initially came out. And I think part of that was somewhat of a negative experience. And then I was fortunate enough to work in a video store the very next year when it came out on video and we got mobbed for it again. So, um, for a long time, I did not think finally of this film. I kind of reconnected with it again in the late 90s, and I don't even know under what circumstances, but um, it did not bother me nearly as much. It did take me back to a, a you know, a, a kind of a simpler time, somewhat of my childhood. 
Um, I do think it stands the test of time. I think it is it is a well made film. It has many many flaws, and it is not a film for adults. It's a film made for kids. There's a little bit of adult humor in it, but it is a film made for children to enjoy. It's you know when the the child rules the world and sets all the traps and fools the adults all the time. That's that's the main story of it. That's what it's all about. And I and I think it's that still holds up. That point still holds up. And you know, I'm I'm a little surprised that it is not as popular now as it was back then, but I do think it's been watered down by a lot of half-assed sequels that don't cover the same ground nearly as effectively or cover the same ground, which they don't try to do anything new with it or even with different characters. As far as watching it with my kids, yeah, I anticipate I'll probably, since I own it, I'm sure I'll be watching with my kids in the, in the future. And ho- hopefully uh, when I see if they like it, then they'll have bring some sort of new joy to it, some new affection for the film. It is one I watch, as I said, once once every other year for Christmas. So, And I watched it this year, so I don't have to watch it again. <laughs> That was Home Alone. Join us next week as we review another one of our childhood favorites to see if they stand the test of time. Actually, again, next week we'll be reviewing another holiday favorite film. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter under Lunchtime Movie. On each of those, you can keep updated with about new podcasts as well as video extras and news about upcoming films. That is it. Happy holidays. This is the first of uh, a couple holiday films we're going to review this year. And we got to get out of here right now, and you guys are invited. is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.